0: On Saturday 6th of June, Richard Thomas taught two sessions at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where Richard took us through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Richard is the senior pastor of Hope Church Worcester and also leads Worcester School of Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to to see you. I did um, our Worcester School of Theology last week and uh, couldn't see anybody. So it's uh, it's great this week to have seen some faces. Uh, I know we're all comparing uh, our lockdown hair with one another and uh, so it's, it's great to see how you're doing with that as well. Uh, the thing I'm most missing about not having School of Theology together is actually the pastries. So my wife was good enough to buy some croissant this morning so uh, I'm, I'm well equipped to begin teaching. So uh, let's look at uh, Samuel King's and perhaps more briefly, at Chronicles this morning. Uh, If I was um, speaking in ancient uh, Hebrew, I'd probably say good morning to you rather than good morning, because um, Hebrew didn't have any vowels, and uh, that's funnily enough the reason why we have two books in in Samuel, two books in Kings, and two books in Chronicles, because uh, in about 200 BC, uh, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and uh, whereas Hebrew has no vowels, Greek does. And that made it too long for one scroll. So I find that kind of thing interesting. You may or may not do. Uh, but that's why we ended up with two, uh, two books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. So uh, originally there was just one book, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. So beginning with Samuel, it covers about 150 years of history, but it's told from what we call a prophetic viewpoint. In other words, how does God see what's going on? And that really is the big issue for all of us at all times, isn't it? At that, particularly At a time like this, but at all times, the big issue is how does God see what I'm going through right now? How does God see what my church is going through right now? How does God see what my nation is going through? So historically, Samuel is uh, at a turning point in the leadership of Israel, so if we wind back a little bit from about two hundred b c to fifteen hundred b c Israel has been led by the patriarchs, the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and jacob who who had families which became tribes and then from about fifteen hundred b c they though Moses initially and then right up to the time of Samuel were led by prophets and judges and, and you 'll have already looked at some of that history. So Samuel begins at a, at a turning point, a transition period when uh, Samuel was the last of, of the kind of judge, he's a prophet, but he's like a judge leading the nation and, and, and it, it began to be led instead by kings from Saul all the way through to the end of two kings, uh, Zedekiah, uh, and then they went into exile. So it's a, it marks a transition period to kingly rule and David's going up and expanding his kingdom and then in two kings sadly the decline again and we'll see again uh, often as this morning this rise and fall rise and fall depending on how people are getting along with God uh, uh, so the book Samuel obviously named after the prophet who dominates uh, the story uh, the interesting thing is there's, there's very few actual prophecies so it's called prophetic uh, it, it was uh, called referred to in, in, um, it, it, for much of history as the former prophets, even though it's written as history. But there are a few prophecies in it. Uh, for example, um, the prophesy, prophecy by Samuel against Eli's house. So no person will live to see old age. That's a, that's a prophecy. Um, when Samuel says farewell, he convicts the people of sin, uh, largely by saying, you've become idolatrous, And as proof of that, there's now going to be thunder and lightning, Uh, and there was, and people repented. Uh, So as many a preacher wishes they could do that one. Uh, And then there's um, when Samuel rejects Saul as king, that's another actual prophecy where he he goes to leave King Saul, and Saul grabs hold of his uh, his robe, trying to keep him, and, and the hem tears apart and then Samuel turns and prophesies, just as this has been torn, so your kingdom will be torn up, torn from you and given to your neighbor. That's another actual uh, prophecy. Uh, a, a, a fourth one would be um, when David had sinned in, and was adulterous, and uh, Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him a story about um, uh, um, about, um about a man who who nicked a poor man's young lamb Uh, and nathan comes tells him this story and and uh, david gets really angry against this and then the prophet turns and points right at him and says you are the man Uh, and then the last actual prophecy is when david is promised that his kingdom will right will last forever and ever a descendant of david will establish an everlasting kingdom uh, which eventually is fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. So not many prophecies, I've rushed through them, uh, but I'm not as you'll see, not many prophecies, but the whole book is prophecy. It's about what God is doing and saying in the nation. It's written to point people to God as they see that they rise when their relationship with God rises, and they fall when their relationship with God falls. So the whole thing is a prophecy. It's in story form. Now, we're used to teaching that in logical points. We're very literate. We can capture a thought in a word and say that's point one, this is point two, this is point three. Most people in the world, certainly at that time, but even now, most people learn through stories. So the story is the teaching. And, And as they read the story, I recommend this as a way of reading scripture, they just read the story and think to themselves what what is God saying what can we learn about God through this story what can we learn about ourselves through this story so that's the kind of literature it is there there are a few poems in it as well when Hannah is given a baby she uh she has a, a prayer of rejoicing that God raises up the poor and the weak and and, and is against the proud uh, which is again is the theme of the book. Uh, but uh, that, that's written as a, as a Hebrew poem. Uh, David's lament when Saul and Jonathan die uh, is very moving and that's written as poetry where he talks about the wonderful uh, love he had for Jonathan which he says surpasses the love of a woman. It's a very moving lament. Uh, David's last song of deliverance when he finally gets free of, uh, of all his enemies uh, actually makes it into the book of Psalms as Psalm 18, that's in the end of 2 Samuel, and his last words also recorded as a poem. So there are are a few poems, there are only five prophecies, but the whole thing is prophetic. So that's, that's the nature of the book. Now, what I'd like to do is just work through the book, looking at some of the main characters. So some of us I know will know this very well Uh, I recommend actually reading the book. It's really good. I've been living in this for a few months now, just reading Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and and really enjoying it. So um, let's tell the story and introduce the characters and be reminded of it. First of all, at the beginning, we get uh, Eli, the priest, and he notices that Hannah, this woman, is there muttering under her breath. And he assumes That she's a drunk. Oh, another drunk's got into the meeting. And actually, she's in anguish about her own fertility. That's a very real thing uh, now, as it was then. Uh, What made it worse was she's being taunted by Peniah, who's her husband's second wife. And you'll notice all through the Old Testament, multiple wives consistently leads to multiple disorder and difficulties. But anyway, that's her situation. When, once Eli understands, he blesses her and Elkanah, her husband, they go home. And in the natural but supernatural way, uh, the Bible says God opened her womb and they conceive. She, she's made a promise to God that if she has a baby, he'll be devoted to the Lord. So the baby's named Samuel, meaning God has heard. And uh, she says, I named him Samuel because I asked the Lord for him. And the Hebrew phrase Sha'al, means uh, asked of, uh, appears seven times just in 1 Samuel chapter 1. In fact, and really all through Kings and Samuel, we, we, we learn that God hears us corporately or individually if and when we turn to him. So keep asking keep asking God for the things that you need, the things you feel he's promised you. And Hannah keeps her promise that if she's given a son, she'll return him to God's service. So uh, when he's uh, a a young lad, she presents him at the temple in Shiloh. That's where the center of worship at that point, Israel kept the Ark of the Covenant there. And she prays a great prayer of thanksgiving. It's in poetry form. And um, later on in scripture, as we read through the Bible, it's echoed. It's very similar to Mary's prayer after the angel visits her there in Luke chapter 1. God hears the humble. Same theme again. He's merciful to those who are in awe of him, uh, but he resists the proud. So uh, Samuel's had a change of address, and then there's that lovely story where God speaks to him in the night, and twice he thinks it's Eli, and, and it takes three times for Eli, who's supposed to be a man of God, to realize this is God speaking. And now Eli has turned a blind eye to his son's abuse of women bringing offices. And Samuel's given a message of God's judgment that no one in the family line will ever see old age. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty weighty word, isn't it? For a first. Imagine that was your first ever prophecy. Uh, it took a lot of courage Imagine bringing that as your first word. Uh, prophetic revelation was rare at that time. And this is his first prophecy, but he he brings it nevertheless. And that's, that's his first introduction, not into the public scene, but into the life of the nation as a young man. Now, the baddies at that time are the Philistines. They're a warring nation living on the coast of Israel, and they're used by God to discipline the nation. They periodically oppress the nation you've done judges and uh, so you'll know the story how how there were waves of invasion and plunder and then they retreat and then this goes on to and fro so after losing uh, a battle the israelites assume they do much better if they had the ark of god with them Uh, it's really what they were wanting was god in a box rather than the god represented by the box Uh, and then they're heavily defeated they lose uh, 30,000 people because of their faith, which is actually more superstition than faith in God. All those soldiers are killed and Eli's sons are killed as predicted. See, God's not malleable. That's one of the things we, we must be reminded of this morning. You can't manipulate God. He's not, we don't have a lucky rabbit's foot faith. Eugene Peterson says, God cannot fit into our plans we must fit into his. We can't use God. God is not a tool or appliance or credit card. That's a great quote by Eugene Peterson. So the Ark of God is captured. Uh, Eli hears the news, falls off his chair, breaks his neck uh, and dies. And uh, the Ark is captured and put in the temple of Dagon, the pagan uh, god. And it just a great story. Um, where, where in the morning Dagon's fallen face down on the floor uh, and they prop him up. Who who needs a God you have to prop up? Uh, and, and then they prop him up again and, and eventually he falls down and his head and his hands uh, are, are broken off because he's a God who can't think, can't see, can't act. And uh, But whilst the Ark is with the Philistines, they suffer from uh, tumours and various disasters uh, and they move the Ark somewhere else and the same happens there. So Eventually, they return the ark to the Israelites. And for those who are not agricultural, uh, the miracle of that is that they, they, they put it on a, on, on a cart uh, with two cows in harness at the front of it who have who just had calves. So naturally, they would, they would walk towards their calves who would be making a, a row about it. But instead, they walked straight to Israel so there's a there's a miraculous thing and even the Philistines realize God is real but the the Persistence uh, so Saul, Saul then gathers the tribes together. He's grown considerable considerably in authority He gathers the tribes together and, and gives them some real straight talking you def, you've been defeated Because you're idolatrous uh, so they then burn their idols and immediately win a victory so i mean you can learn all sorts of things from this there's a time isn't there for straight talking it says in proverbs faithful are the wounds of a friend so samuel was a friend to the nation he gave them straight talking they respond in repentance and repentance is a powerful gift uh, and the, the principle is consistent throughout these books disobedience leads to defeat but repentance and obedience leads to success. And you know the most important thing about us is actually our walk with the Lord, whether individually or corporately. That's the most important thing about us. How are we relating to God and his word? So uh, at this point, the people want to be like other nations, and they, they ask God for a king. Uh, Samuel makes them aware he's not too happy about this, although uh, Deuteronomy presumes that this is going to happen at some point. But Samuel makes them aware that a king is going to come with inevitably taxes and conscription. Uh, He talks with God about it, and God says, okay, go ahead. So Samuel somewhat reluctantly goes ahead and anoints Saul as king after discussion with God. And Saul really looks the part. You know, some people look more like leaders than other people. It's usually quite a shallow judgment, but Saul is head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And the selection process is really unusual. It's very supernatural. God says to Samuel to anoint the guy that comes searching for donkeys. Uh, That's basically it. Uh, Saul's parents uh, donkeys go missing. He searches for them, comes to the prophet's house to get some direction, and Saul anoints him as the next king. And as a sign of his anointing, Saul is powerfully given the gift of prophecy, although no details are given of that. And he starts well. He defeats the, uh, the Ammonites. That, that's a group of people, not a fossil. So he defeats the Ammonites, an early victory under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But really with Saul, it's, it makes a quite a good detailed character study because things go wrong mostly due to Saul's character weaknesses uh, are unaddressed. uh, Our character weaknesses give a foothold for the enemy. Uh, And uh, it's good to be aware of what our character weaknesses are. So having started on a high, he then goes down. Jonathan is his son. He helps in the defeat of the Ammonites. And initially, Saul's really proud of his son, but later becomes jealous of his success when uh, Jonathan wins a battle without him. It's a great test of, le- of leadership is to rejoice when other people succeed or even go ahead of you. But Saul is too insecure, and out of that insecurity comes jealousy. In fact, after the next battle, Saul threatens to kill Jonathan for not obeying an order that he didn't even hear. Uh, for some unknown reason, Saul had made a silly vow that nobody should eat anything until he's got uh, revenge upon his enemies. Uh, and anyone who did so would be killed. And Jonathan came across some wild honey and ate it. So in the end, it's Jonathan's own army, that his men, that defend and protect him uh, be- because of this eaten honey. Uh, but the relationship from then on is, is somewhat stressed. So all Saul's relationships go in the same way. His relationship with Samuel is also getting worse. Uh, Saul is told after after the battle, please wait for Samuel. And then Samuel will give a Thanksgiving offering. He's, He's the priest. But Saul starts to panic when Samuel doesn't turn up on time. And he becomes fearful. So there's insecurity leading to fear and jealousy. And he's fearful his army are going to melt away and just assumes that he should therefore get on with it and make the priestly offering. So he steps out of his gifting and his anointing. It's a dangerous thing to do. He starts to act as if he were someone else and had their role. Samuel becomes very, very angry and tells him the kingdom's going to be snatched away and handed to someone else. And uh, Saul continually tends to think he knows best. A bit later, he's uh, commanded to destroy all the Amalekites and their livestock, but but he spares the king and the best of the animals. It's amazing, isn't it, how we can get ourselves into a position where we we think we know better than God. Uh, We think he needs a little bit of help from us. And again, Samuel is really angry at his disobedience, and and he comes out with the the great line in 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, Some of us are making no judgments, but some of us listening are old enough to remember Keith Green's classic track, to obey is better than sacrifice. You can YouTube it, it's a classic. Uh, So it's a great phrase Uh, and Samuel, who is uh, a heck of a prophet, but also a very manly guy, uh, actually executes King Agog himself. which is quite a dramatic thing. So he takes over uh, and and executes justice, literally. And uh, from this point on, Saul doesn't hear from Samuel ever again. Since he's rejected God's word, God has rejected him as king. And, And Saul from here on is a tragic character. He has no idea what might work, what might not work, how to lead his armies and his people, and he ends up tragically seeking out a medium, the Witch of Endor. Uh, at the start of his reign, uh, he'd, he'd banned witches from the land. He started off well, but he's gone downhill, and now he's consulting a witch. And Saul is told his next battle will be his last one. So it's a, it's a, it's a tragic story of a man who is head and shoulders higher than anyone else. Who who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who lay on the floor and prophesied all night, and yet he neglects to obey God, doesn't address his character weaknesses, and goes downhill. Now that leads us on naturally to David. David's been prepared. It's, it's a great study in itself to see how God prepares David for leadership over many, many years. And David is anointed secretly By Samuel, pending a long period of preparation. Often, when we feel God's telling us we'll do this or that, we we immediately think it's going to happen now. But actually, we go through a period of preparation before eventually being able to do what what God's spoken to us. And uh, he, from that time on, from the time of Samuel anointing him, it says, from that time on, 1 Samuel 16, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. He's got a very different background to Saul. Unlike Saul, he's totally overlooked by his family. He's the runt of the litter. He's the overlooked son, doesn't even get invited when Samuel comes to tea. Uh, but he ends up in the court because Saul has become troubled by an unclean spirit, and emotionally, he's becoming increasingly unpredictable. David's a skilled harpist. He spent many, many hours becoming a worshiper and a musician as he sits there and looks over the sheep. And he's been used to calm the king. And that's his sovereign way of entering the court and beginning to gain experience of rulership without the weight of responsibility. God has his ways and means of getting us to where he wants us to be. But he arrives after God's rejection of Saul, and as the king is deteriorating. Now, the Philistines come to battle yet again. Uh, you'll know the story of uh, of Goliath, nine foot six tall, an experienced um, warrior and court is disbanded because all the guys are at the front, uh, on the front line and um, uh, so David has gone home, he's fitted into his old role as uh, the junior son uh, and he's on cheese deliver cheese and bread delivery duty to the front line. He arrives as Goliath the champion was uh, issuing his challenge. To save mass bloodshed, it was not uncommon to allow champions to represent armies. So after some discussion, uh, you'll know this story, David was allowed to fight Goliath. He's brave, yes, but the root of his confidence is that the battle is the Lord's. It's a great sentence. The battle is the Lord's. In fact, he, he says, who are you to come against the armies of the living God? That's a great perception. He didn't say, who are you to come against Israel? It's who are you to come against the armies of the living God? He has a spiritual prophetic perspective. And his confidence is that, hey, God is with us. He's not with you. You're uncircumcised. You're not part of the people of God. So his faith perspective wins the day, as we know. So he kills Goliath and they win. But again, Saul's jealousy is problematic. He hears the people saying, David's slain his thousands. That was, that was an, uh, you know, a, a YouTube exaggeration. <laughs> but, 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 uh, but he becomes jealous. And so David continues in court as a musician, but he's now in danger. And the spears start to fly when Saul goes into a depressive, jealous mood. Saul then encourages David into a battle with the Philistines, actually hoping that he's going to be killed but inevitably David wins the day. Saul then tries to engage his son Jonathan into a conspiracy to kill David, but David uh, uh, is warned by Jonathan, who then flees, and he becomes uh, an outlaw in preparation for kingship. Uh, It's amazing how God sovereignly trains and equips us, and uh, I'd like to say that's just in good times, but It seems looking back at my life and looking at these biblical characters that often he trains us in difficult times. So David's had his experience of being in court and seeing how a court works. He's now got a time of just trusting God and learning to draw strength from God as Saul hunts him down, learning to trust what God has said, despite all appearances that are contrary uh, to how it seems things ought to be. So Saul hunts him down in his home. Uh, The first time that happens, the Spirit of God comes upon uh, these soldiers and they're helpless to do anything but prophecy. So they just lay around prophesying instead and David escapes. Jonathan continues to help David and their uh, amazing friendship develops to the point where Jonathan actually says that I'll be your subject. Uh, uh, David escapes helped by uh, the high uh, the priests, uh, and, and he ends up in Gath, which is a Philistine town, uh, but he's recognized by the king. It's amazing drama. Uh, in fact, he, he pretends to be mad in order to escape. He scratches on the door, and, uh, drools a bit, uh, uh, pretending to be mad just to escape, uh, and ends up in the cave of Adullam, where 400 people who are, who are malcontent, they're in debt, they're in distress of various kinds, Uh, and that's his first leadership role. 400 is quite a lot, but they're not easy people to learn learn leadership with, but that's what he's doing. That's the way God is preparing him for leadership. He has to provide for them, he has to protect them, he has to uh, lead them, and some of these guys are the ones that actually in the end become his mighty men. So don't be worried if your leadership is small. Be faithful with what God has given you to do. Saul then chases David around the desert and uh, escapes only with a cut robe. I love the translation of the Bible that says that um, Saul went into a cave to powder his nose. I think that's um, very politically correct and a rubbish translation. Anyway, he goes to relieve himself in the cave. Uh, David's men urge him to kill Saul, but he just cuts a bit off of his robe. And, and saw then kind of, and he does it a couple of times, he temporarily repents. Probably that's the wrong word. He shows remorse, but soon the hunt begins again. It's, there's a difference, isn't there? An important difference between remorse and real repentance. Repentance is when we turn away from our sin to God, saying, I, I don't want to ever do that again. Uh, so he, he experienced remorse, but then begins chasing him around again. So David is wandering around different deserts and in the desert of Moan he meets Abigail. Uh, He's actually uh, asked for food from Nabal, uh, Abigail's husband uh, who refuses him in a very rude manner. And it's basic hospitality in the East to provide for your guests, but he refuses to do that. And uh, David's on his way to kill uh, Nabal and the whole family. But Abigail hears of this and wisely provides food and drink and greets him. Uh, when Nabel realises what a close brush with death he's had, he has what seems to be a stroke or something like that, uh, or a heart attack, and, uh, and dies. And uh, Abigail, being a good-looking woman, then becomes David's uh, second wife. He's already married Michael, one of Saul's daughter. And yet again, we'll see that the multiple wives and the family he produces leads to trouble later on. Fearful of Saul, David becomes a mercenary of the Philistines and earns their trust as well as learning more military skills. The Philistines are really wary of testing David's loyalty. Interesting, David is learning a lot, even from the Philistines, about warfare, which is going to come in handy, but they don't want to test his loyalty when they fight Israel, so they leave him out of the battle, which is God's sovereign plan because David's not implicated in Israel's defeat or the death of Saul and Jonathan and that that really brings us to the end of 1 Samuel and and the beginning of 2 Samuel is going to chart David's rise but it would be good to just stop and uh, and consider this question here's a couple of questions one what have you learned from the story so far what what really hits you and uh, and secondly, what what uh, what character weaknesses have you seen in these guys so far? Another way of asking the same question, which would be more personal, perhaps not a discussion one, is: if the enemy wanted to bring you down, what would he use? But that's a more personal question. So, how about what have we learned from the season so far, and what character issues have we seen? There'll be others as we move forward, but what character issues have we seen? So. Uh, if we're ready, we'll go into uh, discussion rooms and just have a brief uh, chat about that just for uh, some seven, 10 minutes, something like that. And then we'll rejoin and continue with To Samuel. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I hope your discussion went OK. Um, sorry, I, I gather a few uh, had microphones turned off so I couldn't enter into discussion. So I hope you've grabbed a cup of coffee. Or something. So we we rejoin the story at the beginning of what we call 2 Samuel, but it's just the second half of the book, and uh, that really charts the rise of David. It begins with him uh, lamenting the death of Saul and Jonathan, and particularly his friendship with Jonathan. But after their death, there, there's a there's a tribal war of murder. And revenge developing between David's house and Saul's house until Saul's chief oh, commander Abner, God. who's a real hard man, changes side and brings the tribe of Benjamin uh, with him. I'm just going to jump so in. The tribe it. of Judah, Benjamin. which is David's tribe, and the tribe of Benjamin uh, join together and crown David king. Richard I'm just going to jump in here Richard I'm just going to just shout out to everyone if um, you've rejoined from breakout rooms if you can stick your mute if you can mute yourselves again that would be great so we're all on mute so we can all, all hear Richard that would be fantastic so if you can all mute yourselves I think most people have but just have a look keep cameras on if you want but um just mute your microphones that would be fantastic thanks back to you Richard Hey, well done everybody. So, uh, yeah, so there's a tribal uh, war between uh, David's family and Saul's family and uh, Abner changes sides and unites the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin and David is crowned king in the south of the country and uh, he's there, he's settled, eventually he settles national unity and that's helped because he captures Jerusalem. Jerusalem has not been the capital city, it's uh, it's, uh, held by the Jebusites and he conducts a a surprise attack and and makes it, having captured the city, which was a great city, was strong with defensive walls on three sides. He makes that his capital, which was a really good political choice because it's on neutral territory. It's not his tribal land, it's not Saul's tribal land. So it becomes at that point the, uh, the capital of the nation. David is keen to make peace after so much um, strife, so he honors uh, Mephibosheth, who is the lame son of Jonathan, and from then on his empire grew, grows and grows by military campaigns against the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Edomites, and Israel reaches her political height, and now these, uh, there are big questions in the Old Testament about the amount of sheer amount of bloodshed that goes on, but these are tribes that God has announced way back when Moses uh, was coming out of uh, of Egypt he's announced his judgment upon them for their uh, pagan religion uh, which some of which we're reading kings is pretty horrible uh, and he's announced uh, a, um, a judgment upon them and has announced that Israel will be the weapon of his judgment so uh, David fulfills those promises uh, through actually through through warfare and Israel reaches her political height. But again, we see the theme of, of rise and fall because uh, it isn't very long before we see a decline in David. Interestingly, the rise is nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with strategy, nothing to do with, with military strength, because David is actually at the height of his strength. It's to do with godliness and obedience. So there's some lessons in there for us in that. Now, when he should have been with his army it was the time for war which was a seasonal thing at that time when the weather was uh, good and there wasn't a harvest to take in either. Um, David then fell into adultery with Bathsheba which is chapter 11 of 2 Samuel and as we could spend a lot of time it's a great study on temptation but uh, the devil makes hands for I makes work for idle hands uh, we could talk about that we could talk guys about the difference between looking and looking. Uh, we could uh, uh, we could look about the importance of God giving you a neck and some legs to run away from temptation. Uh, but David basically breaks all of the first five commandments. He covets his neighbor's wife. He lies to her husband. He then steals the wife. He commits adultery and then arranges for murder. So that's that's quite a little period in David's life. And over the next generations, they're going to lose everything God has given them At the same time, uh, when we get to the New Testament, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, is recorded in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 1 verse 6, along with Tamar and Rahab, who also had something of a checkered record. And that's, that's the grace of God. So there's judgment. But even in the midst of judgment, there is mercy. So David commits adultery and Nathan, the prophet, comes to him tells him the story about the stolen sheep, which we talked about before, and David repents of his sin. One of the fruits of that is Psalm 51, which is a great psalm, Uh, cleanse me and I'll be clean. I was born in sin, I was shaped in iniquity, uh, and so on. David is genuine conviction in contrast to Saul's remorse. Uh, But David faces the consequences of his sin, and one of the first consequences is that The child born to Bathsheba dies. They then marry. Their second child survives and is called Solomon, which means peace. And we see the grace of God as God sends the prophet Nathan uh, to David and says that God's given Solomon the name Jedidiah, meaning loved by the Lord. So if anyone's expecting a baby listening this morning, we've got uh, Samuel, the Lord hears. We've got Solomon, meaning peace. We've got uh, Jed, which means loved by the Lord, which is my personal favorite, but I'm not having any more. There we are, just a suggestion. So David's family, however, become increasingly dysfunctional. And this, this uh, uh, sin with Bathsheba seems to result in him losing all moral authority. And so as the story goes on, Amnon, his oldest son, Uh, conspires and then rapes Tamar, his half-sister. It's interesting. If you ask most people in church about David, it's David and Goliath is about as far as you get. But the the second half of his life story is somewhat tragic. Uh, This was actually unaddressed by the king. Uh, You just have to address issues in our lives and our family lives and our church lives. So there's a brother raping a half-sister, but it's not addressed by the king either as household head of the family or as king and head of the nation so two years later Absalom his second son takes matters into his own hand kills out invites amnon to a party kills him in revenge and flees the country eventually David invites him uh, back but I think it's a couple of years uh, later but but the matter is never ever discussed. I don't know if you have issues like that in your life, but it's not good. Uh, you bury things, but you bury things alive. And Absalom's invited back. David never talks to him, uh, but he becomes very popular with the people. He's, he's got his lockdown hair, uh, but it's beautiful. He's a gorgeous pin-up sort of guy. He becomes so popular with the people that David in the end has to flee Jerusalem and a civil war erupts. At this time, uh, a a sad prophecy that Nathan brought is fulfilled as Absalom parades David's wives and concubines on the palace roof and has sex with them in public. So the whole thing is a massive disaster. There's a civil war battle. David uh, begs uh, Joab, his commander, uh, to spare the life of Absalom, Uh, But Absalom, with his uh, long hair, gets caught up in a tree, and Joab uh, just kills him. Uh, uh, And um, so don't go riding in the forest just at the moment with your lockdown hair. It's the moral of the story. David goes back to the city, but is in mourning and is put straight very severely by Joab, who tells him he needs to just settle the country and take up his leadership publicly again, which, which he does. But the nation remains unhappy despite all these territories. People in the north begin to feel neglected and a guy called Sheba starts a revolt which is put down and then you're getting towards the end of David's life and at the end of his reign, we get to the end of the book, uh, his pride leads him to take a census and a different prophet, the prophet Gad tells him that he gets to choose whether they have three years of famine, three years of enemies, or, or plague as a punishment. Uh, what a choice. But he chooses plague and 70,000 people die of plague, which then stops as he makes a sacrifice at the threshing floor of Aruna, above Jerusalem. That's chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. Uh, and David then sees this land is idea, ideal place for a temple, the place where God's judgment has been Uh, ended by means of a sacrifice, which has got great echoes of the New Testament. Uh, He insists on buying it. Aruna offers it for free, but he says, I won't offer to God that which costs me nothing. And he begins to gather resources for the temple that Solomon is going to build. So how do we read to Samuel? Obviously, we can look at the characters. Much of it is story teaching large parts of the world still learn through stories. There's much to gain from just reading big chunks of the Bible. I recommend it. We could look at character studies. We've, we've perhaps thought discussed Saul in our groups, given personal advantages, empowered by the spirit, but flawed by unaddressed character issues. Uh, there's a great series of studies on, on David, from the beginning to the end, really, how the Lord looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance, his preparation for leadership, uh, his temptation, uh, learning to strengthen his heart by God as he wanders around the wilderness, uh, women like Hannah and Abigail and so on. We could look at it and that's the way often it is looked at. In terms of history, it's about 150 years of history uh, and the development of kingship, as uh, Israel becomes jealous of the way the nations around them are led. And they, they move from a federation of tribes to a kingship. But God insists the kings should be reading the Lord daily and providing spiritual leadership. And of course, centralizing power makes the issue of that person, the king's character and his godliness, absolutely critical. It's no less critical in God's church today. Character and godliness are critical. Theologically, how do we look at Samuel? Well, I can think of two or three key things. The first is we learn that God intervenes in history and responds to people. And you could look at that in terms of Hannah's prayer, David's sovereign foundations, oppressors and deliverers sent according to how people respond to him. God intervenes in history, and that humbles us and gives us hope at the same time. Secondly, we get what's called by theologians the the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that his kingdom will endure forever. And that's gonna form the expectation for the the next 300 years in Israel. Careful family records would be kept. Would this one be the coming son of David? And eventually, as we know, fulfilled in Jesus, who is the son of David legally through Joseph, but physically through his mother Mary. And uh, in the New Testament, uh, many of the readers of the new, original readers of the New Testament being uh, Jewish, the Gospels, Acts, Romans, Timothy, Revelation, all give that title to Jesus, uh, the son of David, who's given all authority in heaven and on earth, who reigns forever. And God's ongoing purpose for us is to be ruled by one king crucified the king of the Jews, but king of every tribe and tongue and nation, crucified not far from the threshing floor where David offered his much smaller sacrifice in order to stop the judgment of God. So that's just a few theological reflections. And that takes us immediately into uh, one and two kings, again, originally one book, book, uh, and the big emphasis is not really on on the territory rule, but again the, how each king ruled as evaluated by god and really that 's how our life is isn 't it? We should live to the audience of one, as one commentator puts it, uh, with absolute power, the character of the leader was decisive for their nations, so as we go into into kings kings doesn 't give equal space to each king it doesn 't even give space according to the length of reign. Uh, so we know from uh, secular history that Omri, for example, someone that is not mentioned much, he, he was in the North Kingdom, in Israel, but he was outstanding economically, apparently, but he's dismissed in eight verses. It's irrelevant. Uh, Jeroboam the 2nd he's got seven verses for the same reason. And you get the phrase, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But someone like Hezekiah he gets three chapters why because he's a good king in fact Elijah and Elisha get a third of the book if we see the two books as as one the middle section is all about Elijah and Elisha they're great characters and there's no real focus on the political or the economic or the military events except in passing it's not conventional history because spiritual and moral qualities are the key. So we as believers have a very different perspective on even the history, the current history and politics of our own nation. Spiritual and moral qualities are the key. And Kings is the last of what's called the former prophets from Joshua onwards, history, but from God's perspective. What did they believe? How did they behave? What did God things uh, think about them? Kings opens with Israel as a powerful nation and records really, it's decline downwards with odd little blips upward, civil war, divided kingdom and eventually exile. So again, it's rise and fall. King Solomon inherits a huge territory from Egypt all the way through to the river Euphrates and he controls even more territory with people bringing tribute to him. Uh, One of the things you have to understand to, to get your head around kings is that the country um, soon splits. So Israel no longer refers to the whole country. Israel is the bit in the north, the 10 tribes, uh, and Judah is the southern tribe. So, so what we get is a, is a simultaneous history of a divided nation or two nations at that point. The north, Israel, goes downhill until eventually Assyria conquers them and sends them into exile and the South Judah have some good hit kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, but they also slowly go downhill and they're eventually exiled to Babylon, which is ironically where Abraham had come from. So they lose in about 500 years what it's taken them a thousand years uh, to gain and uh, end back there. So that's, that's the sort of overall picture of kings. Sorry, my watch is falling off. Okay. So unrest began with Solomon. Solomon's heavily taxes, were, which were perceived to be only benefiting the south with his huge building program, both of the temple, but of his royal palace and of a separate palace for his um, Egyptian wife. It was a political marriage, but she wasn't allowed to live in Jerusalem, which was too holy. She had another palace built outside. So the north began to... Um, Resent this and civil war erupts and conflict continues for about 80 years. The south, southern kingdom, Judah, they keep Jerusalem for worship. But in the north, they set up Bethel, which means the house of God, and Dan as alternative worship centers. But sadly, they create golden calves as the focal point of their worship, which is really aping the nations around them. The Egyptians have a god called Apis. And uh, uh, the Canaanites have a fertility god, uh, Baal, and and so they're aping the nations around them and breaking uh, God's covenant, which said you shouldn't have any graven images. So succession in the north, in Israel, isn't smooth. There are regular assassinations and takeovers, uh, and Elisha and Elijah play an important role up there in the northern kingdom, which is 10 of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Until in 721, they're deported into Assyria, and the book then focuses on the smaller southern kingdom of Judah, so all the way through as you read it, it alternates kings in the north, kings in the south. It's like one of those GCSE questions, compare and contrast the fortunes of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, I put in a large um, uh, table, I won't go through it now, uh, but I hope you appreciate it, because it took me a heck of a lot of time to get right, but it basically shows people sometimes say, well, who was prophesying at what point? And so I've just done that to help you in your understanding. And, and we see that throughout, throughout all these kings, God, God was speaking. God was giving them time to repent, time to turn back to him. He, he never left them without a prophetic voice. And, and doesn't prophecy do that? It draws people back to a reliance on the Lord. Huh? There are many faithful prophets in this period in both uh, nations, but little fruit apart from God smiles on their faithfulness. Uh, but they're, they're faithful. They keep prophesying. They keep saying, if you don't repent, this is what will happen. But nevertheless, the people won't respond and eventually ends in exile. So uh, it's not clear who wrote Kings. I don't know how interested you are. If, you, uh, if you're at college, you spend ages uh, speculating on these things. Some people uh, think it's Jeremiah, that's their best uh, guess, because parts of it are identical to his uh, prophecy and um, it would make sense of the fact that he's not mentioned in the book, even though he's contemporary with Josiah and uh, prophets often wrote about kings. So there's a large chunk on Isaiah and Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah, lots of Ayahs there Uh, Jeremiah was specifically told in Jeremiah 30 and 36 to write about Israel. So it could be that and Kings tells the story in prophetic form. If he wrote it, he didn't write the end because he was taken to Egypt and uh, died there. And events at the end of the book of Kings show familiarity with what's going on in Babylon. So if he wrote it, someone else uh, finished it. how was it written? Well, he uses selective sources uh, as, his, as his sources for writing uh, and comments then in terms of what the Lord is saying. So he references a book called the Acts of Solomon, uh, the Chronicles of the Kings of, uh, of Israel, which is not the same as the biblical book of Chronicles, and the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. So he's using secular records and histories of reigns but putting in his commentary on how God views the politics and the religion of the day. Parts of Isaiah are also identical to kings, suggesting that they either borrowed from one another or had a common source. And as I've said, the the two kingdoms uh, are covered simultaneously, which makes it a bit confusing at first. But once you get that into your head, you can understand What's going on? That the writer wants us to know how each kingdom is progressing in relation to the other and in relation to the will of God. Sometimes there's war, sometimes intermarriage leads to peace, but it's a gradual, steady decline. It was written, or at least most of it was written, uh, when the temple was still standing. 1 Kings 8, verse 8, he says the temple is still standing to this day, which suggests it's written before. The exile of of judah to babylon in 586 when the temple was then destroyed the lo- the very last part of it talks about the babylonians killing zedekiah the last king of judah having watched his own son's execution which suggests the book may have been finished halfway through the exile period as there's no mention of any return and if you use your imagination if you were one of those people has gone into exile, or one of the next two generations, your father or your grandfather went into exile, and and you're told you have a promised land, uh, uh, but things have gone wrong, your question would be things like, well, why did that happen? How did this happen? If God was with us when we went through uh, the Red Sea, if God was with us in conquering the land, what went wrong? What about God's promises? Where was God in it all? All. Whose fault was it? And so uh, this nation has been exiled or will be exiled. Two generations at least won't see Judah. They're they're exiled far away from their center of worship. And they're asking exactly the same questions we ask when things go belly up for us. How how can we still praise God when everything's gone so wrong? Why has this happened? And you can almost imagine yourself there. And that, that helps understand why these books were written, Samuel and King's. And so they're asking those faith questions and they read these books and they learn the answer that the fault lies with people not honouring God. And particularly in their leadership, that they've repeatedly ignored and disobeyed God's word, both written in the first five books of the Bible and prophetic. But they also learn that God is preserving the royal line of David and that there's a promise over that royal line. And so there's still hope. Uh, The king before Zedekiah, who was executed, was Jehoiakim. But he's released back from imprisonment and allowed to eat at the king of Babylon's table. So the promise, despite their backsliding, the promise is still being fulfilled. And there's hope. So that's the purpose of writing, that if we obey God, we go up. If we disobey God and neglect our relationship, we go down. But God, nevertheless, is still faithful to his promises. So just for a closer look (coughs) at Kings, Um, Solomon means peace, as we've seen, Uh, begins by asking God for wisdom. That's a great promise. If any man lacks wisdom, it says in James, let him ask of God. And God gave him that and much, much more wealth and honor and fame, uh, wisdom uh, beyond understanding. You remember the two stories of the, uh, the people that uh, someone had stolen a baby, two women claiming the baby. And Solomon's given huge wisdom. He says, cut the baby in half. And of course, the natural mother says, no, no, let her have it. And so he discerns whose child it is. So he has huge wisdom. He builds a temple over seven years with material, gathered by uh, David, uh, and uh, he dedicates the temple uh, using words drawn from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Actually, interestingly, including God's promise that he will bring his people back from exile if they repent. So if you're in exile and you read that, there's hope for you. He becomes famous and prosperous. He's visited by the queen of Sheba. He's known for his wisdom, but to be honest, He's also known for his foolishness. He collected 3,000 proverbs. He wrote over 1,000 songs, six of them in the Bible. He's, and it's very easy to be like this, he's he's wise for others, but he lacks personal wisdom. So he's wise for others, but for example, he took 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, Many of those marriages would have been political. For example, the daughter of uh, Pharaoh, in order to gain peace with their next door neighbor. He built a magnificent temple to honor the one true God, but at the same time, he marries many foreign wives who bring their gods with them and distract him and the people away from the one true God. So his heart and the heart of the kingdom become divided, partly because of who the king chooses to marry. Who, Who we choose to give our hearts to makes a huge difference to our lives. He also uh, expends vast amounts of uh, money on building his own palace and another one for his wife. It was a 12-year building program, causing much, much resentment. So after Solomon dies, the kingdom divides into two, as we've described. And in the north, in Israel, all the kings are compared to the first one, Jeroboam, who was bad. And they're all recorded as bad or very bad. And the constant refrain is, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, just like Jeroboam. Some of the bad kings are killed after a couple of months, some go on longer. Down in the south in Judah, meanwhile, there's a mixture of good and bad kings, and they're all compared to David, who's seen as the the, the sort of ideal kings. The two very good kings were Hezekiah and Josiah, the very worst, as we'll see, is manasseh so too good too bad a um, bit like match of the day too too good too bad hezekiah's story is it's also told in isaiah's prophecy uh he constructed a tunnel to bring uh, spring water into the city to make it robust against sieges uh, he had a miraculous extension to his life uh, sadly he also welcomed babylonian visitors who brought him a gift after an illness and he gave them a complete tour of the palace and the temple and the treasury. After which, the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, tells him that one day the Babylonians would plunder it all, which is what, of course, happened. The other good king is Josiah, who became a king when aged only eight. Uh, and in the, in the midst of cleaning the temple, they rediscovered the scroll of Deuteronomy, which just shows how much they had neglected the living God when you read you know that's that 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 moment when you rediscover your Bible that you've been using to prop open a window all summer uh, it's that moment when he rediscovered says something about where your relationships at. And, and they rediscover the scroll of Deuteronomy uh, Josiah orders it to be read uh, and then he's appalled at the decline of the nation and he orders a national reformation to halt idolatry to destroy all the high places where sacrifices were being made to false gods, and that's a good thing. He was a good king, but of course, passing laws doesn't change people's hearts, and that's the real issue. So, after his death, during a war with Egypt, the nation immediately backslides again. Uh, Too bad, or three bad. Uh, Manasseh up uh, in the uh, south. He took. Um, he, he took Judah. In the south, sorry. He took Judah to new depths. He worshipped a god called Moloch, uh, which involved um, sacrificing baby sons in the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, So it's thought that they heated a statue up or lit fires and then sacrificed children on the fire uh, there. And and of course, the Valley of Hinnom eventually becomes a synonym uh, for for hell or Hades uh, and torture and, and death. Uh, He's a terrible, terrible uh, man, and it's appalling what took place, although that same spirit, you could argue, uh, still exists as we sacrifice many an unborn child today, although not to idols, except maybe the idol of our own convenience. Tradition says Manasseh uh, executed Isaiah by sawing him in half inside a hollow tree trunk. So a bad, bad man. Uh, the, the next couple who were bad was Ahab and the famous Jezebel. He was a very bad king. He was actually a weak king, but he married a Phoenician princess. And it's one of those great things. In some, it, it, sometimes you get a word that exists in more than one language, but means something totally different. And uh, Jezebel, Jezebel's name in Phoenician means primrose, which is quite lovely. But in Hebrew, it means excuse me, it means garbage, which is great, a great irony. She was a controlling schemer. She plotted against neighbours so her husband could get his vineyard. She was just an evil woman and came to uh, a bad end. So uh, people still talk about Jezebel in terms of scheming, a spirit of control and manipulation. Interestingly, her, her daughter, Athaliah, married a king in the southern kingdom and who's equally um, Jezebelic, if you like, and manipulative. Her ambition was to be a ruling queen, and she started killing all the children of David's royal line. But again, we see the mercy and the sovereignty of God in that an aunt took the youngest boy, Joash, and hid him ready to take the throne when Ataliah dies. And so again, the purposes of God continue as David's line is preserved. God keeps his promises whatever however people manipulate. So then we get to the two prophets uh, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah best known of course for that confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's a great drama isn't it as as he pours water on the sacrifices and they both call on their God and he takes the mickey out of them maybe he's on holiday maybe he's got a bit deaf and then when it's his turn God sends fire from heaven Onto the dampened sacrifice. It eats up the fire, the sacrifice, the stones, and everything. And the prophets of Baal were routed. And again, we get a manly, a very manly, war, warlike prophet killing the prophets of Baal and Israel turning to God, knowing that he's, re- uh, that he's real. Because Elijah also decreed that it wouldn't rain except if he said so and uh, was fed by famines, uh, famine, uh, by ravens in the midst of the, the famine. And, uh, you know, in the New Testament, it says Elijah was a man just like us. Uh, well, look at some of what he did. I got some questions about that. But, but, but he's talking about the power of that we have in prayer. He was a man of like passions to us. Uh, and God hears prayer, even to the stopping of rain in Elijah's case. I don't really fancy being fed by ravens. It all sounds grand until you actually stop and think about the detail of being fed regurgitated food by a black, ugh, no, don't think about it. Anyway, when threatened by, after the high of that uh, mountaintop experience, he, he's threatened by Jezebel runs for his life. And it's actually a great study in, in burnout uh, and, and in restoration of what, what's needed. If you wanna, it's 1 Kings 19, 18, 19. Uh, and he's physically and emotionally and spiritually exhausted and how God gives him physical rest and good food. God gives him uh, a retreat. God gives him time. Then he gives him the reassurance he's not alone, and that eventually speaks to him about his future and recommissions him. It's a great story and how God treats us when uh, we get to such low points in our life. Uh, Elijah was uh, succeeded by Elisha, and that's right in the centre of the two books. Uh, so it's the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of two kings. So originally right in the center of the book, these two prophetic ministries. And uh, Elisha famously asked Elijah for a double portion of his spirit. And that's that's a phrase that's not familiar to us except from that story. But it was a phrase used of inheritance customs. So a four son estate would be divided into five with the oldest who's going to take on responsibility for continuing the family business, getting a double share with so some extra resources for the extra responsibility. So Elijah effectively was asking to can take over the prophetic business, the school of the prophets and asking for sufficient grace to do it. And since uh, Elisha saw Elijah taken up in the, the whirlwind, he believed that his, his request was being granted, uh, takes up Elijah's oil robe and uses it to part the river assuring both him and those watching that God was with him. Uh, So Elijah gave this huge national challenge to repent. Elisha tended to be more pastoral for the most part. He raises the widow's son in name, which Jesus did a replica uh, miracle uh, similar to that in his ministry. He also fed a hundred people with a few lives. And obviously Jesus surpassed that. By quite a lot, as he fed four thousand and then five thousand. But space is given centrally in the text to these two prophets to remind readers that that look, look as you look back, hasn't God given you frequent warnings and signs and wonders to prove that you should turn to Him? So judgment comes, yes, but it comes to those who know that what they've done is wrong, and so the people. Of, of, of God's people now in exile can understand why what has happened has happened so just some some lessons from that now as kingdom people we set the tone for the groups we're in and especially so if we're leaders we set the tone that's that's a great thing let's let's be people who set the tone for the groups we're in especially if we are leaders. Let's beware the dangers of covenant relationships outside of God's family. Let's not neglect God's word, either written or prophetic, because we live too, don't we, in an age where pagan ideas or secular ideas, as much the same, uh, live alongside our faith. Let's, let's make sure we focus on what God is saying, what God thinks about our lives and our decisions. Let's be people who attend to family matters, other things we've neglected, things that lie buried, but buried alive. Let's attend to them. And let's be encouraged. God is still sovereign in human history. He's still able to intervene both in individual lives and even national events. He's trustworthy. But our human choices have an effect. We have to take responsibility for our lives. Being careful to listen out as we in our day have prophets amongst us who can give us uh, god 's perspective on what 's happening and what we should do let 's take prophecy seriously let 's weigh it up listen uh, listen to it, uh, act upon it when it 's weighed up and found to be right there 's also some great reminders of Jesus here Jesus is gr- described in the New Testament as greater than solomon he 's become for us our wisdom. He's greater than the temple. We'll talk more about that in the, the second half. Jesus is the promised son of David but unlike the first David he's without sin and he offered the perfect sacrifice to stop the judgment of God, the, the sacrifice of himself, the ultimate sacrifice. You remember Elijah met on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus in that mysterious incident and talked with him there about what he would accomplish. He went through the ultimate confrontation with evil, much bigger than Elijah's, at the cross and emerged three days later triumphant over death and hell and sin. He also replicated some of Elisha's miracles as we've seen. He's the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets ultimately pointed towards. He's the ultimate king. Amen. Okay, just a little bit on um, on Chronicles, which is actually mostly is identical to King's, except he starts the story with Adam. Uh, traditionally, it's uh, um, attributed to Ezra. Scholars will argue, as scholars do, about that, but um, there are similar passages in there. It covers the same story as Samuel and King's, but it ends with Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia, ordering the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem and giving people permission to return. And it answers the kind of questions that you and I would ask if we were going back after your great grandfather or grandfather had, had come out and had this judgment. It's, it's asking the kind of questions you'd ask if you were going back to a land that actually you've heard about but you've never lived in and nor have your parents lived in. It's asking questions like, who are we? And why are we back here? So the, it covers the same kind of history, but it's, it starts with a whole load of genealogy because the author wants to show continuity of the people of God from the earliest times right till now. It's the big story and where we fit in. And, and the writer's saying, hey, despite our reduced circumstances, we are still God's people. The Lord is still our God. So there's less material on the Northern Kingdom, a lot more on David, and, and the temple, more on Hezekiah and the good kings, uh, no material on David's adultery. So he's the author's reworking the material for his own situation. What is God wanting to say now? He's wanting to say, hey, you're still my people. That's who you are. Why have you returned? Well, you've returned to reestablish worship and obedience to God. So Chronicles is less focused on military and political events and much more focused on David, And Solomon as as the founders and renewers of worship. So you get the story of David dancing before the ark. You get a whole load of stuff about his organization of continual worship and people to prophesy with harps and so on and forth. Uh, The arrangements for Levites and priests and musicians, gifts for the temple, dedication of the temple and the spirit of God coming. Uh, You get Josiah repairing the temple. So it's more worship, focus the northern tribes cut themselves off from true worship and so it focuses on Jerusalem and the major hope is as we go back to the land it will function the nation will function as it should we will worship God and we will be obedient so chronicles is full of stories that challenge the people to trust God in the crisis that have confronted them so he tells the story of history but it's to apply to them now let's trust God like we should have then Let's restore worship. Let's obey God. Let's be a people who repent and find blessing because trouble comes to those who turn their backs on God. So the city and the temple are being rebuilt. God's now to be worshipped faithfully so that we know his blessing.